23. So here's God's word to his beloved sons and daughters. It says, they went, to, they went each to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came to the temple again. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test Jesus, that they might bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once he bent down once more and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. He stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but we have the light of life. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Amen? Amen. Invitations are a written verbal request that invites a person to an event or to a place, like a, a birthday party, a Christmas party, a wedding, a graduation, a baby shower, a church event. And these invitations are usually sent out in advance, and each recipient has one job, just one job when you get this uh, invitation, RSVP by a certain date, just one job. And it's not that hard. Now, there's an unspoken expectation when you receive some of these invitations. See, if you agree to attend someone's birthday party or a wedding, it, there's an expectation that you're going to bring a gift. Right? Okay, there's an expectation. And, these, and these, these type of invitations can be costly, depending upon where they register, right? Or what type of gift they want. Time and money. So, what have these invitations cost you this year? How much money? How much time? This week? This month? How much has it cost you? These invitations. There's another type of invitation available. One sent to all people. To all nations. One that doesn't cost you anything. One that doesn't require you have to give an RSVP. It is a divine invitation from the Lord God. And he invites all people to come to him. He says in Isaiah 55, come, whoever thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why spend your money for that which does not, for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me and hear that your soul may live. Christmas is such an invitation from the Lord God. That's what Christmas is. Him inviting you to the waters. It's an invitation to, to have milk and wine without money, without cost. He invites you to come into the light. 
free of charge. Come so your soul may live. Come to Jesus without a bait and switch. For he alone is the light of the world. And whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The the light of the world, the light of life is what Jesus gives to people who receives the invitation of Christmas and come to him in faith. That's an amen statement. That's what he gives you. And guess what? There's no dress code. No waiting list. No bouncer at the door. Restriction with telling people you can't get in. Anyone can come. The, the, the invitation of Christmas is a call for us to come into the light as we are. You come to Jesus as you are. And he will meet you as you are. The whole you. Not parts of who you are. He meets the whole you. And this invitation of Christmas, it invites us to come as we are to the real Jesus. Okay? Not some fake Jesus. Not some Jesus created in our own image. The image of our culture, or our race, or our politics. Not a Jesus of our own imagination. Because we all got a Jesus of our own imagination. The real Jesus is eternal. The real Jesus is creator. The real Jesus is the word. The real Jesus is the God man. Fully God, fully man. The real Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The real Jesus is Jewish. Born in the manger manger because there was no room in the inn. Born in a working class family. Please know that. Not with a silver spoon in his mouth. Raised by a man who isn't his real daddy. Jesus, the real Jesus, is rejected and betrayed. Experiences injustice, suffers greatly, beaten and nailed to a cross for your sins. And three days later, he resurrects victorious because the victory has a name and his name is Jesus. So we come as we are to a Jesus who is made like us in every way, yet without sin. A Jesus who understands our existence, who gets it. Think about that. You don't have to just explain it to Jesus. He gets it. He knows the struggle is real. him. He knows it. Hey, I lived it. You come to a Jesus who knows what it's like not to have a place to stay, who knows what it's like to sleep outside, who knows what it's like to get up early in the morning, who knows what it's like to have your family not understand you, to think you're crazy. He knows it. He knows what it's like to be among the people on their own level, as one of them. We come to a Jesus who is relatable. And he doesn't have to deny himself to relate to you. And you don't have to give a Jesus, you don't have to deny who he is either to make him relatable to other people. Jesus is a friend of sinners. That's who he is. And Christmas gives us the real Jesus. And we can come to him as we are. Look with me in the text, beginning again in verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 53, it says they went to their own homes, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. You see, people throughout this area during this time, they're fascinated with Jesus. They're drawn to his ministry and his ministry. The people are marveled by his teaching ability. And in chapter 7, verse 15, some of the Jews said, how is this man has learning? When he has never studied. 
How can he speak this way? How does he know all this stuff when he never hung out with the Pharisees and the scribes? How is it? Jesus works miracles. He welcomes sinners. He preaches and teaches with authority. And he has the ear of the people. He has their attention. And so it's not strange then to know that a lot of those same people came to Jesus one morning while he was at the temple. Early in the morning, they came to see him. They come to listen to his teachings. And please notice Jesus' actions here. Don't gloss over what he does. He, he, he relates to the people. It says he sits down, sits down among the people as one of the people. Being with them, not above them. He's present with them here. And he teaches them the truth. Maybe evangelistic Bible study. That's what is happening with them here in the temple court. Sharing with them the good news of the kingdom. And the Bible study is going well. Until some group of people show up. You know, when you have a group, an event, everything's well until those people show up. And that's what happened in Jesus' Bible study. These religious leaders crashes in on his Bible study. And these people, they're suspicious of Jesus. Suspicious of his ministry. Suspicious of his teachings. And they're opponents. They're not followers. They don't believe in him. So they come to Jesus as they are with a hidden agenda. Interrupting his temple Bible study in the process. These leaders come into the light in order to try to turn the light off. Know that. They come as they are, but they come to try to turn the light off. Everyone isn't happy about Christmas. Okay? Everyone doesn't rejoice at the birth of the Messiah, if you know the Christmas story. Some people feel threatened. They're suspicious. They're skeptical. Some people come to Jesus in order to try to discredit him. In the ancient world and also in our time. They come to him Looking for reasons why they don't have, why they can't believe in him. Looking for reasons why they can't accept him as Lord and Savior. And these Jewish religious leaders, they come to him in order to entrap him. They, had, they got a fail-proof plan that they devised, that they would finally expose Jesus for who he is. Giving these leaders the evidence that they need to, to be able to bring charges against him and finally have him arrested. Finally, they'll be able to silence the light of the world. So what's the plan? It's not a what, it's a who. The plan is a person. You see, these religious leaders, they often complain that Jesus welcomes sinners and he eats with them. That was one of their complaints against Jesus. He spends time with the untouchables, the undesirables, the outcasts. And they don't even understand why. Why is he friendly with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he hang around those people? You see, their, their, their fail-proof plan is to use a, such a person against Jesus. Since he's a friend of sinners, let's use one to trap him. Let's use the kind of people he loves to expose him as a lawbreaker. These self-righteous leaders, they crash in on Jesus' Bible study, and they place before him a person caught in the act of adultery. Look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the middle. This is, this is a heartless action. Unloving to put her on blast in the middle of Jesus' Bible study. 
She's standing in plain sight for all the people to see, being publicly exposed for her sin, wearing the shame and the guilt that comes with it. These leaders are an ancient day TMZ, basically. The spotlight and cameras are in her face. Put yourself in her shoes. What would you do emotionally? What would this do to you emotionally and mentally to be publicly exposed for your sin like this? How would you feel? It doesn't have to be anything like adultery. It could be any sin. None of you would like it. None of you would like it to be put on blast for your sins publicly in the middle of a Bible study. Imagine the fear, the shame, the guilt, the hopelessness. Now let's not be indifferent to her. Let's not dehumanize her. One of my frustrations with some of how some of us in the West approach scripture is that we can come to scripture as if the biblical characters are fictional characters. Like they didn't really live this stuff. I just want to get to Jesus. Just give me Jesus. But what about her? What about her pain? What about her brokenness? What if people came to you to bypass your pain to give you Jesus? Would that be love? Would that be love? No. Deal with it. Deal with what she's dealing with. She's not a a fictional character in the book. She's a real person who committed a real sin. And what she's experiencing in the middle of Jesus' Bible study is real. It's real. How do you bring people to Jesus? To Christmas? To the light? How do you handle the sins of other people before Jesus Christ? How are you going to handle the sins of your family over Christmas dinner? You know, the secrets that you never talk about, that always come up when you get together. The elephant in the room, how are you going to deal with it? The sins of this woman is brought into the light against her will. I'm pretty sure she didn't willingly go with them. They brought her before Jesus in order to see if he will condemn Look at verse 4. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Yeah, Christian, what do you say? Her silence speaks a lot. It speaks volumes to what she may be going through emotionally and mentally. She comes into the light waiting to see if the light would judge her, to judge her. You stand before Jesus not knowing what to expect from him. This whole situation is one hot mess, one hot mess. And and, and these religious leaders, they don't even apply the law rightly themselves because the law actually requires the man and the woman to be punished. But they only brought the woman before Jesus. See, they ain't even applying the law fully themselves. This tells me they don't really care about her. They don't care about what she did. They don't care about her sin. What they want to do, they want to use her and her sin in order to trap Jesus. That's the whole point of this. They don't really care about her. They want to use her and her sin to trap Jesus. Let's see if Jesus will contradict the law 
in order to protect the kind of people he welcomed. So what do you say, Jesus? Shall we stone her for her sin of adultery? Shall we? What does Jesus do? No verbal response from Jesus. Doesn't answer that question right away. He's silent. But don't mistake his silence as fear or weakness or compliance. He does, his initial response is it's nonverbal. The text says he bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. Now that's weird. That's weird to me. Why is Jesus doodling in the sand with his finger? What is he writing? Maybe he's writing. I'm not an expert in the law, but I did say 10% of my car insurance with Geico. Maybe he's writing that. Maybe he's writing the sins of the religious leaders. Maybe he's writing a to-do list, his Christmas list, because it is Christmas Eve soon. Maybe he's writing a list of things he needs to do. The point is, no one really knows what he's writing in the sand. Any, any, any suggestion is just a speculation at best. But his actions does reveal he won't be dictated to by these religious leaders. That's what, that's what, his, that's what his actions reveal. Because, listen, they charge into his Bible study, interrupt his Bible study, put her on blast. Now, they put him on blast, trying to get the upper hand, trying to control the situation. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. His nonverbal response shows that he's still in full control of the situation. He, he, it shows that he will move when he's ready to move. His, he'll answer the question when he feels like answering the question. And the text says they continue to ask him over and over and over. Like kids asking you, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. The message Bible said they kept at him, badgering him over and over. So what you say, Jesus? What you say, Jesus? Shall we stone to Jesus? What you think, Jesus? What you say? What you answer, Jesus? Eventually... He stands up and says to all of them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He drops the mic, basically. Curbs their enthusiasm, stops them in their tracks, Checks makes them. Jesus is like, hold my drink while I doodle in the sand one more again. And that's what he does. He bends back down and writes in the sand some more. The Jordan crime meme is all over their faces right now. Because Jesus has clapped back at them and they have no response. All they can do is pick up their bags and go home with a little dignity that they have left. Verse 9, they says, but when they heard it, they, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. One by one, they went away. The plan, the great plan, falls flat on its face. They come into the light, trying to turn it off, but he turns them off. And for us as Christians, people can come to Jesus all they want to, to try to discredit him. It doesn't work. People have been trying to do that since he came on the face of the earth, and they have not succeeded. And they would never succeed. That's not an amen statement. Jesus has always been under attack. 
And where does he still stand? Victorious. Victorious. And this should bring comfort and hope for us. That no matter what comes at us as Christians, Jesus is able. He is able. But do we believe it? Do we believe it? So they come to Jesus. They got their feelings hurt. So if you come to him the wrong way, you may get your feelings hurt. But they see they, they bring, they come before him as they are, but they come before him without sensing their need of him. So you come to church every week. You come, it's coming before Jesus, but do you come sensing your need of him? Or you just come and check in the box? They bring another person's sin before Jesus. They don't even bring their own sin because they think they're okay because they follow all the rules. Who are the kind of people you have written off as lost causes? Who would you like to see publicly exposed for their sin? Who do you think deserve judgment? Who would you like to see stoned to death? Conservatives? Liberals? President Trump? Hillary Clinton? Socialists? Capitalists? Nationalists? Colin Kaepernick? Trump supporters? Who is it? I know, I'm stepping on all y'all toes. (laughs) Pro-life people? Pro-choice people? People who kneel during the national anthem? Dirty cops? Bad parents? People who are sexually broken? Who do you want to see exposed? What about you kids? What about you teens? Who do you think deserve judgment and condemnation? Your parents? Who is it for you? Let the ones of you who without sin be the first to cast a stone of judgment. Christians, all Christians, every one of us around the world, we are not instruments of God's judgment. That is not our role. That is not our lane. When it comes to other people's sin, you don't have the security clearance to judge them, to stone them, or to condemn them. That's not your right. That's not, you don't have the authority. You don't have the holiness, and you sure don't have the righteousness to do it. Okay? You don't. You don't have it. None of us do. Now I'm missing a sheet of notes. How about that? There we go. What we can do is hold other people accountable in the spirit of mutual brokenness. All Christians, without exception, are testimonies of God's grace and mercy. That's what we are. That's all we're ever going to be. And when we bring people to Jesus, we bring them in order for them to receive the same mercy and grace that we enjoy every day. That means you bring your enemies to Jesus for that. The people you don't like, you bring them to that. If you bring them to him for judgment, then you don't understand the mercy he has shown you. Every day. We have grace without limits as Christians. Mercy without limits. And for us, that's what Christmas is. Now, what about yourself? How do you bring yourself to Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? How do you come to Jesus? I'm not talking about at at moment of conversion. I'm talking about every day. How do you come to him? How do you bring yourself to him if you are a Christian? Do you come to him hoping that he'll condemn you for something? Some of you live in the spirit of condemnation because you still haven't met the real Jesus. Even though you've been a Christian for a long time. People can come 
into the light without fear or judgment, wrath and condemnation because of who Jesus is. And we can live in the light without fear of judgment and condemnation because of who Jesus is. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? Because we really don't want him to give us what we truly deserve, okay? He doesn't give us what we truly deserve. He gives us mercy and grace. Merry Christmas. The invitation of Christmas is for all people, not just good people, not just Southern folk. It's for everybody. The worst person you know, if that person comes to faith in Jesus, he's going to receive them. That person be your brother, sister in Christ. If you get mad at Jesus, then you don't understand your own brokenness. That's what Christmas is. Anybody can come. Anybody can be saved. It's open to anybody. He can save the worst of us. No one is beyond redemption. No one is a lost cause. Because you're not. You're not. All are invited to come into the light as they are. And Christ does not treat us like people do. He welcomes us. Think about that. You go to Jesus' house unannounced, and he says, come on in. Come on in. There's an extra seat at the table waiting on you. Join me for a meal. He welcomes us with all our brokenness. And guess what? He also welcomes us with all of our self-righteousness. Because that's sin, too. He meets us where we are, but guess what? He doesn't leave us there. Man, that, that. He meets you where you are, but he doesn't leave you where you are. Come on, church. Come on. In the passage, he's left alone with this woman who was put on public display because of her sin. And he stops writing in the sand. He stands up and he says to the woman, where are they? Where are the religious leaders? See, I think Jesus got jokes here because, come on, Jesus, you know where they are. You know they left. You standing up talking about where are they? You know they had their tail between their legs and left. Come on, Jesus. Stop being funny. He says to her, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And he says to her, neither do I. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You do realize that Christ has the right, the power, and the authority to condemn her where she stands, but he doesn't. He was the only one in that little Bible study that had the right, the power, and authority to stone her to death, but he doesn't because he's a merciful God. He doesn't put her sin on display, nor does he put yours on display. He doesn't guilt her. He doesn't shame her. He simply says, go and sin no more. And sin no more isn't him saying, oh, you got you to be perfect. What he's talking about, you no longer have to live in sin with an unrepentant heart. You don't have to live that way. There's freedom. And the invitation of Christmas is him coming to set you free from the bondage of sin. All of it. All of it. And you don't have to make yourself right before you come into the light. You come into the light to be made right. That's the gospel. 
you come into the light in order to be made right. And when you are made right before God through Christ, that's how he sees you forever. Over the town of Bethlehem, how still we see they lie. Above thy deep and dreamless night, the, the silent stars go by, and yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are meant in thee tonight. It's meant in Christ. All of them. He's the light of the world. And whoever follows him will never walk and live in darkness. They will have the light of life. You can come into the light. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You can come into the light. And this center candle here, you know what this candle represents? It represents that Christ came. All right. Come on, light. See? All right. It represents that he actually came. And I can't get it to light. I'm just going to move on. I had one job, saints. One job. There we go. Christ actually came. And he will forever be the center of our existence. And this table, this meal that we're getting ready to partake, it's given to all people who have saving faith in him. All who come into the light and saving faith are, are called to partake of this meal. Reflect upon what this meal means for you. It's a reminder that Jesus was put on public display for your sins so you won't have to be. It's an 